in our society. Uh, one or the other. Uh, we can sit here as a small congregation and wonder and say, does it make any difference? Or we can fall under the illusion of going to a large church that preaches to what the spirit of the age desires uh, in supporting all those things that are anti-God under the guise of being a church and not make any difference at all. So we see these things that are juxtaposed, a church that is hopefully following the Lord and a church that is not. And the reason I bring that up is because in this particular passage in Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34, we are going to see God's ways uh, in his viewpoint on two nations that should give us hope for our situation or where we're at right now in a true church. This passage should be relevant to the true church of the Lord today. It should give us some guidance and encouragement and sure hope in God's plan. Rather than beleaguered and battered, what we see is we are part of the church that's banners and victory will stream throughout time, even if it doesn't feel like it now in the true church of the Lord. So our takeaway today, before we get into anything, is to say that God will choose the older to serve the younger in this passage. God will choose against the way of culture, against what culture says, to serve his purposes. It will further show that there is victory as the victor, the church is the victor over the schemes of the devil that we see. So in this passage, I will briefly read through it first, and then we will exposit it. Verse 19, now these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac enter, entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh was moved by his entreaty, so Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of Yahweh, and Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And her days to give birth were fulfilled, and behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she, when she gave birth to them. And the boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he had an appetite for hunted game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. 
And Jacob had cooked stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Then Esau said to Jacob, please give me a swallow from the red stuff, this red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then, then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. We take a moment for prayer. Lord, we come before you today as humble servants of you, as humble believers for the work that you have done to save us. We ask that you are with us as we study your word, as we hear what is said in this passage. We ask in Jesus' name that you would give us understanding. Amen. These opening verses, 19 through 21, tell us about the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah. They use that Hebrew term again for generations, toledot, that is standing there. This comes right after we spoke of Ishmael last week. Now we are into the new patriarchal line. This is the continuation of the redemptive line that God has enacted. It says there, he clearly, the writer Moses, clearly tells us the important parts of this story. It again focuses that Abraham was the father of Isaac. Abraham, the one who received the promise, that was Isaac's father. Do not forget that. You are, this Isaac is that one. And it says here, we, we want to remember that Isaac was 40 years old when he became the husband of Rebekah. 40 years old. Now, many years have passed since the time of the promise till the time that Isaac was born. And then another period of time has passed till the time that, I, that Isaac had a wife. His mother has passed, has never seen Isaac to be betrothed, right? She has never seen that. She trusted in the promise as she died, but never saw the next step. All she saw was the son of the promise. Abraham, on the other hand, what he saw was the wife that was coming. He sent the servant outward to go and collect a wife for Isaac. So he sees, and then he dies. So now we had two people, Sarah and Isaac, who had heard the promises of God, who had said that you will be a great nation. She sees the son without the daughter. All Abraham sees is the son with a wife, and then they die. They never see the next steps. They never see a grandchild. They go to their graves trusting in the promise of God that it will continue on. And the crazy part about this is he, is, he becomes married to Rebecca here, but it is another 20 years 
before they have a child. I want you to just sit with that. I want you to kind of roll that around in your head. The promise has been given. There's decades between the promises that are given that are, that are happening. And there's even two decades here before they're going to have a child. Maybe we could just stop right now and say, how often do we pray to God for something and, and if it doesn't happen within the next 37 seconds, well, God's not going to come true on this one. 20 years. His father Abraham is long since gone, has long since been buried in that field, right? He's facing Mikbalah, right? So if we think about that, right, as we, as we look at this, right, as it says in verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, and we want to make sure we know who those generations are. This Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And we're focusing in, right, the, the writer of this particular passage is making sure to tell us, is making sure to tell us that just remember, Rebecca is not part of the curse line. I just want to make sure that everybody sees here in Israel, remember they're in the, they're in the wilderness, here in Israel, I just want you to make sure that you guys see, that you understand that this Rebecca is not part of the line of Canaan. This Rebecca has come from Haran, from Mesopotamia, from Abraham's brother's line. Just, we need to make sure that you understand what I am doing, God is doing, okay? That's where we kind of vector in on this particular passage in verse 20. But then we have a problem. Immediately we have another problem. It's seeming a human problem. It's seemingly, uh, she's barren. She can't have a child. Now remember, 20 plus day journey to go find this wife. 20 plus day journey to go find her. 20 plus day journey to come back with this wife who has never seen, they've never seen each other. They become married. Uh, It seemingly is fulfilling the promise and yet she cannot have children. She cannot have children. It seems that we have this from a human perspective. At every turn, this promise seems to uh, be running into barriers that humans can't handle. We remember that Abraham himself and his wife conspired to have a child with Hagar, which failed miserably. Right? Because they didn't trust in the promise. Now I'm sure that Isaac has known those stories because what does he do in verse 21? In the LSB here, it is translated as Isaac entreated Yahweh. This is also the Hebrew word for praise to Yahweh. Praise to the Lord. And just a reminder, as I am reading out of the LSB, Lord is translated uh, as Yahweh in this. He prayed to Yahweh. He sought the Lord. He uh, went to him because it's not like he doesn't know that he is the the miraculous child that was given to a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. The only thing he can do is pray to the Lord 
he's probably heard the stories about, remember how your dad tried to have a child with Hagar. You remember, the, you remember your brother, your, your half-brother that we sent away, right? Uh, you remember how that happened. So I'm not, I don't want to make that mistake. So the only thing I can do is pray to the Lord. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray to the Lord. And what happens is, it says there in 21, on behalf of his wife, he prayed on behalf of her because she is barren. And Yahweh was moved by his entreaty, by his prayer. So Rebekah, his wife, conceived. One single verse, it says all these words. Now, we will pull that apart a little bit. We'll just look. Just remember that the plan was always the redemptive line. The plan was always the promise. The plan had been set in the, in, in the annals of heaven since before the earth was created, what was going to happen. When he prays to the Lord, he isn't, the, it, says, it says Yahweh was moved by his entreaty. That doesn't mean that he changed his mind. In turn, what we are seeing here is that we are seeing right relationship between Isaac and the Lord. Right relationship between Isaac and the Lord. Isaac is approaching the situation appropriately, right? The fully of his own accord, uh, through his heart that is bent towards the Lord, he says the only thing that can happen in here with my wife who cannot conceive, this woman that you have given me, is that I can only pray to you, Lord, perhaps even then do, do for us like you did for my mother when she had me. Because it was always part of the plan, it says there that the Lord was moved and she was able to conceive. I can't help but think as we look back through where we have come to this period of time, how many times seemingly the promise was not going to come true from human minds. Cain and Abel. Right? Then we have a flood that destroys the entirety of the earth. Then we have towers that are built to heaven that are destroyed and people are separated. All with the backdrop of that redemptive line from Genesis 3.15 that I will do this is what the Lord says, I will do this. Not you will do this, I will do this, right? We have the promise that's given to Abraham. And by the way, Abraham, you're going to have to leave everything you know and everyone you love to make this promise. And he goes. We see the lies that Abraham tells to protect his wife and himself. Uh, we see, as we mentioned before, we see the untrust in what the promise of the Lord is by going to Hagar and trying to have a child there. It's seemingly every turn that when man tries to go above and beyond what God has ordained, that there's a hiccup that happens here. Yet in this case, Isaac has prayed to the Lord. My wife is barren. The only thing I can do is pray to the Lord. She is the one that you've given to me. She is the one that is from the uncursed line, so this must be the thing. And he, he prays, he entreats the Lord, and he is moved, and she conceives. Hmm. Just thinking about Abraham, 
and Sarah as they go to their graves too. They've seen just one step next, one step ahead, and that's it before they pass away. Yet they're trusting in the promise. I might be tempted to stop right here and just say in the end and we leave and just say, are you trusting in the promises that the Lord has given for you? And by that, I mean, do you trust that when he says that you're saved through Christ Jesus, you believe that you're saved through Christ Jesus? Uh, when he says that he will bury you into a new heaven and a new earth, do you believe that? Now, maybe we keep that, just think about that as we talk about this story. Do you believe the promises of the Lord? We don't want to forget where I have this at, where we've, we've, we've stamped our uh, we've stamped a, a title of some sorts on this, but we've said that overall what we see here is these two nations that are going to come out. We're going to see that God's promise stands, and God's ways are not our ways. And when God says he will do something, he will do it and complete it. And when God says the church is victorious, the church is victorious, even if it does not look like it to us. Even if the church seems barren to us, it is God's plan for this to happen. So as we continue forward, after the entreaty, it happens, verse 22, she conceives, and we don't know how, we don't know when he prayed. It is in the singular that he prayed, indicating that, you know, we don't want to draw too much on that. Maybe he prayed multiple times. Maybe he prayed one time and trusted that God heard him the first time. I tend to lean towards that. That it isn't like that, that he needed to repeat the prayer because God can hear every prayer that we give. And then it says that she conceived, and then in verse 22 it says this, but the children will candle the verses 22 through 27 or so, or 26 or so, it says, but the children struggled together within her. That struggling is jostling amongst each other. Uh, that, that, that she can feel this that is going in. So this miraculous conception that occurs. And let's jump ahead for a section. A, a second. Isaac was 40 when he got married to her. The children are born when Isaac is 60. 60. 20 years later. Not 20 days later, 20 years later. Okay? Trusting in the promises of the Lord, right? These children are jostling together so we can imagine that this prayer would my, and how often do we do this when we pray for the Lord's intervention in something? Uh, when it's painful, whatever that intervention is, we don't think it's of the Lord. We tend to think, I know I pray and hope for lack of pain, right? I pray and I hope for ease. We can imagine that they would pray about this thing, and in my mind, the answer to the prayers is smooth streets and green lights, right? No hesitation, no struggles, and then you have, they pray for this, she becomes, she conceives, she has a child, and they're struggling to a degree that it says there, that says, uh, that, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? 
They're struggling to the degree that she is questioning this pregnancy. Why is this struggle occurring within my womb, right? To the degree that it isn't just like a kid kicking, as they do, but something more than that. Uh, to the degree that she's questioning what is happening to her. And, and so what does she do? I'm going to inquire the Lord. I'm going to go to God. I'm going to go to Yahweh. I'm going to ask him, why is it like this? Why does there seem to be a, a, this, this it, not just kicking, but a struggle within me? Why does there seem to be a wrestling match within my womb? Why is this happening to me? Verse 23. And Yahweh, the Lord, said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two nations are within your womb. Wow. Okay, so this must be this must be part of the promise, right, that came to her father-in-law. The promise that there would be, that he'd be the father of many nations, but two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And the older shall serve the younger. So, she gets this answer. So the reason this is happening is there is an internal struggle that will be outwardly shown as they grow. There is something more going on here. I would ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 55. There is more going on here than you can conceive. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. The Lord talking about himself, uh, it is good to remind us of this. Remember how I said I like, I like smooth streets and green lights? Uh, smooth streets and green lights? And, but verse 8 and 9 says this about the Lord, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We just consider that for a moment. We had this struggling within the womb, just something more than just kids just moving around, but something, uh, I don't want to say it's a battle within there, but something of a wrestling that is going on with inside the womb, enough so that is causing her to cry out to the Lord for answers. If you've given me this, if you've changed me from barrenness to having children, why is it like this? I see other people having children, and they certainly don't have this struggle. So when the Lord answers, he says that there are two nations within you. These two peoples will be separated, and they will become nations in and of themselves. And the older shall serve the younger... It might not have been the answer that she wanted, but it's the answer that she got. It might not have been the answer that she wanted, but the answer that she received. There is a positional change that's happening in there. Uh, there is uh, 
between one and the other. And it says in verse 24, in her days to give birth were fulfilled, and behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment. And they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. The struggle was even happening there. So his name was called Jacob. Uh, Jacob would mean God helps. Yah Yaakov is what it would be. That Yah is sometimes a shortened form of Yahweh that you'll find in the Hebrew. So God helps is what his name means. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Imagine those time frames waiting for the promise to come true. Waiting for it to happen. Hear that these cultural norms are, are, are going to be, uh, that cultural norms where the older would typically be the head of the household. We even saw little pieces of that when, when they went to collect Rebecca as the wife. Right? We see the son that is there as the, is the, as the man of the house. The full term, the babies are born, one holding on to the heel of the other. That part of the story we want to keep in mind then is two nations, one serving the other. God's plan. And then we dive into verses 27 through 34. 27 through 34. And the boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Telling us a little thing about, uh, a little bit about their character. But we will notice in these verses, these eight verses here, that Esau is the primary player in here. Uh, what happens with Esau is the primary thing that we're going to find in here. Whereas Esau was the one who is out and about in the countryside, in the field, in the wilderness, wandering out there, it says that, that, that Jacob was, the word we get in there is more mild-mannered, uh, that when he would stay close to home, we could see that, that even the word they use for this peacefulness here gives us the, the idea that he was sound he was even in his ability to handle things that perhaps we won't want to stretch too much, but even we would call that Jacob himself was dependable. Now, what I'm not saying is Jacob was not perfect, okay? Jacob was not perfect, but there is something about this description that we see here about these two. Esau was out and about away from his people, out in the wilderness, uh, doing his thing, hunting game, whereas Jacob stayed in and amongst the people of his father and his mother. It says in verse 28 that Isaac loved Esau because he had an appetite for hunted game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I have, just reading that passage, uh, and we don't want to read too much into it, but it is kind of fascinating that he loved Esau because of what Esau gave him. 
there is something about a felt need that is satisfied, uh, that is there. But Jacob, uh, but Rebecca loved Jacob. But Rebecca loved Jacob. I would be remiss if I said that this was a passage about favoritism in a family, which it is not. What might be a little better for us to say is that he was that Isaac was more bent towards Esau because they were of not that he loved them to the degree in a family love, but they had more in common. So it was easier for him to relate to Esau. In the same with Rebecca, with Jacob. Not that they love necessarily over and above one another, but you know, in familial love, right? Even in personal love with that, you know, there is that, that sort of thing that you sometimes it's easier to talk with or be with this person than the other. But doesn't mean uh, in that. Uh, I don't want to say it, in that loving kindness that there is a difference. They are still his sons, and he loves them both. It says in verse 29, as we close off on that particular section, 29 through 34, some key passages. We recall then that God had said, there are two nations within your womb. And now in 29, and Jacob had cooked stew. And Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. So we have this picture that he has been out for a while. Uh, he has no more food. He needs sustenance. He is uh, hungry. We're going to fall into a seemingly innocent exchange, maybe between two brothers, that they might uh, be uh, exchanging this information between them. He was famished in verse 30. Then he said, then Esau said to Jacob, Please give me a swallow from the red stuff, this red stuff, for I am famished. So give me something. I see you're cooking something. I'm hungry. I need something because I'm worn out from whatever it was I was doing out in the fields. It says, therefore, his name was called Edom. And we'll pause there just for a moment. This is an important name that we find, Edom, meaning red. As I said to some people yesterday, it's fascinating that when you see Edom in the Hebrew characters, it is spelled, the Hebrew characters in the consonants spelled exactly the same as Adam is spelled. But when you put the vowels in it, it is pronounced differently. It means red is what it is there. Uh, it will be a moniker that is given to his people, that nation that, come, that comes uh, afterwards because of him. It is a moniker that is given to him. This red, and then he says that in verse 31, but Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Now, maybe a seemingly innocent exchange of things that go on between brothers, but Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. First give this thing that you have as the older to me. We know, because we have the whole story, we know that it says the older will serve the younger and that this is important. Think about Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, where it says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Fully, not, fully it was 
It was Jacob's decision to say this, give me your birthright. And it will be Esau's decision to move forward with that exchange. I have in here, too, to consider Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, as we consider this exchange, if we consider that man is responsible even as the Lord directs their pathway... Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, we have this, uh, is, the, is a passage out about Nebuchadnezzar. We remember Nebuchadnezzar was driven into the wilderness, that, that, that he would, his fingernails would get so long and toenails like eagle's talons, and that his, that his hair would grow so long it was, it was like the feathers of an eagle uh, as part of the judgment of the Lord against, against him. And notice what he says Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, it says, And all the inhabitants of the earth, speaking of Yahweh, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, that is the Lord, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can strike against his hand or say, What have you done? In other words, the Lord, as it says in Proverbs, man plans to do something and does that, but those steps are directed by the Lord. But this passage where this exchange is going to happen is not so much about Jacob as it is how Esau responds. So Esau says in verse 32, he is so hungry, he says, behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? If I'm about to die, what use is the birthright? I'm so hungry. I'm so famished from doing whatever it is I was doing out in the field. That What use is the birthright to me if I would only have this sustenance for a moment? I would feel better. What of use is it to me? Yet Deuteronomy 21.17 would tell us Deuteronomy 21.17 would tell us about the birthright and how important it is. 21.17, it says, But he shall recognize the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by, the, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first of his vigor. The legal judgment for the firstborn belongs to him. A double portion, the legal judgment belongs to him. And yet Esau is right here for a hungry, felt desire. He says, this thing, this birthright means nothing to me. It is of no use to me. I have have more use for this lentil stew than I do for this birthright who I haven't seen the advantage of yet. He is making a decision for temporal gain to satisfy felt needs. He's doing it to feed his stomach. Verse 34 says, and, or verse 33, and Jacob said, first swear to me, and so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So the older will serve the younger. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and rose and went away. Thus, Esau 
despised his birthright. Now, I want you to think about a couple things here. When he, the order of their birth comes from the Lord. We said last week in Acts chapter 17, it tells us that the times and places for every man have been ordained by the Lord. So essentially what he is saying, uh, Esau is despising the things of God. He is despising the order of birth. He's saying this thing that where I've been placed at is of no value. It means nothing to me. It has no use to me. It is absolutely short-sighted. But he's saying what God has planned, I deny. Now, over top of all that, we know that God is working, right? But Esau is fully responsible for that decision that he has made. He is fully responsible for casting aside the birthright that he had been given. If we think to... I always like this example in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where God uses the Chaldeans to enact punishment on Israel. And it says in verse 10, it says, They mock at kings, these Chaldeans, and the rulers are a laughing matter to them. Uh, it, it says previous to that, their horses move like leopards. Right? They are so strong that nobody can stand against these Chaldeans. And God says, when, he, when Habakkuk is asking for God to answer, he says, God says, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do. And guess what? Israel is going to be punished first. And I'm going to use these pagan Chaldeans to do it. And then he says, they laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture on. Verse 11, they, and they will sweep through like the wind and pass it on, pass on, but they will be held guilty. Fully responsible for everything they do. Esau, fully responsible for the decision that he made. Esau didn't make that decision with a gun to his head. Esau fully decided to cast away his birthright. And God is fully sovereign when he says the older will serve the younger. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Hebrews 12, verse 6. This is probably not on the screen. I, this was, uh, came up a little bit later thinking about last night. It just says there that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. Keep that, uh, keep that in mind. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. Keep that passage in mind as we just continue forward just a little bit. So, he has given away the birthright. Esau is essentially acting in a godless manner. He will become the nation, his people will become the nation of Edom, right? Israel knows this, they know it very well. Uh, they will have kings 
Uh, they will eat them, will have kings before Israel ever does. Genesis chapter 36, verse 31. Uh, and they will assist these Edomites. Remember, Jacob becomes Israel. They will assist in the destruction of Israel. Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. And Edom worships gods that are not Yahweh. Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 14. And furthermore, guess who else was an Edomite? King Herod was an Edomite. You remember King Herod from the time of Jesus' birth, who orders that all the, all the boys of a certain age are slaughtered and killed, torn out of their mother's arms and their heads dashed against the rocks or are slayed with the sword, right? He is an Edomite. That's Matthew chapter 3, 16 through 23. So we just kind of, we kind of keep those things in mind about this selling of this birthright. What does this have to do with us, right? You know, on that tiny level, we could say, which is not the point of the passage, it's a true statement, it's almost proverbial in it, that sometimes a warning that quick decisions can have eternal consequences. If I make a, just a rash decision, it can have eternal consequences for me. But that's not the point of the passage. I said before, we, we gave the example of what the church looks like now. And I said that somewhere we're going to find this in these things, that there's two nations in the womb. Well, the two nations are this. You have the nation that worships the Lord, and you have the nation that hates the Lord. You have the church now that stands, uh, the, the true church that that believes the gospel, that believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that, that eschews the things of the world. We have that, that that worships the Lord, and then we have the world that we stand against. We have a birthright that has been given to the church that Jesus purchased with his own blood. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Let's turn there. Ephesians 5, 25. Let's see it. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ does not give himself up for a church that is losing. Christ dies for the victorious church, even if we look around and it seems like a barren place where the gospel is preached, where the gospel is told, where the joys of Jesus are proclaimed is not barren by any stretch of the imagination, regardless of what you see. Regardless if it seems like there's the struggling of infants in a womb. Christ died for the church. This is the birthright that is given. Right? Christ died for the church, and if you are found in Jesus, you are part of that birthright. We know as Israel is hearing this story, what are they hearing? Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. They are the younger brother. They are the ones that are weak. 
Deuteronomy chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11, it says, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Now, I'm going to pause for a second. They have read the story that Moses has given them about this, how they came to be. Israel, their name is the name of Jacob. That's the line they're in. How they came to be the younger, the weaker brother, the one that dwells in the tents, right? That's how they came to be. And it says here, by the way, it isn't because of you. It's because of me, the Lord. Six, for you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you. I would choose the younger over the older, have chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other, than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. You were the younger brother. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. He kept the promise. Yahweh brought you up out, uh, out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You shall know, therefore, that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a, thou to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments but repays those who hate him to their faces to make them perish. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding to you today to do them. Listen, friends, brothers, sisters, the church itself has been purchased by Christ by his blood we are part of that victorious thing, even if we don't see it now. Remember, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob went to their graves not seeing the fullness of the promise, but trusting in the promise. We, many of us, will probably go to our graves and not see the second coming of Jesus. But we will know the joy of that second coming of Jesus. We will know him, as we have seen before, even if we don't see him now. We fall under the category at the church that looks small and ineffectual. We are under the category of the younger brother. We are under that category of the, of the true birthright that has been given to us through the payment through Christ. We know that God chooses for his glory that chooses not as man chooses, but chooses as he sees fit. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. But to those who are, are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. He chose Jacob, the peaceful one that lived in the tents, over the bold one of Esau that was out in the fields, almost warrior-like in his behavior. God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. 
that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are. This is what God does. When he chooses Jacob over Esau, he is choosing the weak over the strong. He is cho- he, and he is showing Israel that as they are in the wilderness. Look, I know it looks tough out here. I've driven you out of, I've driven you out of Egypt, out of the Egyptians' army, and the whole way along I have kept over you. And I have done this not because you are stronger or more numerous, but because I chose you. And the same goes for not only, uh, not only the church today, the church that we can sometimes, we don't see the victorious banners that are above it, right? But they are there in eternity. That those banners stream into eternity of Christ and his church is victorious because Christ did not die for an ineffectual organization. Christ died that the church is victorious. Even at the current time when it feels like we are being chastened like that passage happens that I read. First Peter chapter, uh, First Peter chapter two verse nine says, "But you, this is what now, look, you, just like what was said to the Israelites, you, you, all you found in Jesus Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." I'm just getting chills even thinking about this passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. But in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Therefore, we too, found in Christ Jesus, are God's chosen people, chosen to believe in the salvation that comes through his son. We are that weaker brother. We are the younger brother. We are the younger brother that the Israelites are hearing about when they're in the wilderness as the Edomites are shunning them, are selling them out to destruction. They are reading that and saying, these Edomites are these from Esau, but we know we trust in the promises of the Lord that he will bear us through, and he does. We are chosen to believe in the salvation that comes through the Son, even if we are currently beset upon or beleaguered or being, as that passage said in Hebrews, being chastened by the Lord. We can trust in God's promises in a world that is against his church, the church that Christ died for, and we can trust in those promises even if it takes 20 years or 200 years or 2,000 years. We can trust in the promises of God. Read and know your Bible. Know that Jesus is Lord over all, that he has us in his firm grasp, that once saved, always saved. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time here. We ask that you let those that are in the congregation read your word to not trust in me because I said it, but to trust in your word because it says it. Let them see it for themselves in the pages of your holy book, the Holy Bible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.